Colin for leading the first part of our service, and uh, it's a great honor, privilege, as ever, to take you into God's Word tonight on a little journey that we might see what God would say to us. Let's just have a word of prayer before we open God's Word together. Father, um, we've just been singing that we can never prove the delights of your love until we lay everything on the altar for you. Lord, if the sentiment of the hymn writer has any biblical precedence, then we want you to speak to our hearts tonight, because we want to be not happy in a haphazard way, but we want to know the fullness of the joy of our salvation that you have wrought for us in Christ. So make us tonight, by listening to your word, a blessed people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Take My Life series, we come to the line in the song that says, Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. A situation where there are two competing people or groups and where both sides are equally determined to get what they want is normally described as a battle of wills. Often an impasse is created due to neither party being willing to submit their will in favor of the opposing point of view or desire. We have two unresolved disputes currently affecting the lives of Edinburgh and Lothian residents, uh, namely the postal workers and the refuse collectors' um, action that they're taking in support of their job conditions and pay. Whatever you think about that, maybe you've taken part in industrial action yourself, maybe you're a negotiator, a mediator in such a thing, Or maybe you're an employer that's affected by uh, revolting employees. Whatever you feel about these things, uh, we can be very reluctant to surrender our wills to someone else. And, you know, rather absurdly, that can apply to our attitude towards God's will too. We can be reluctant to surrender our wills to God's will. Our acts of surrender, even as Christians, can sometimes be like the little boy whose mother keeps insisting that he sits down in his high chair. When he finally unlocks his knees and plops into the seat, his glare and emphatic response told the real story. I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. So the theme and the challenge before us this evening and every day is take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. So is anybody there yet? Completely surrendered to the will of God. 100% committed. Well, that's the target. That's what we're called to. Uh, Let's consider God's word together and see whether God would say something to us as individuals. The background to our reading in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to be reading Matthew's account of what took place in a place called Gethsemane. The background to that, if you want some background reading when you go home, I should have given you this last week so you could have done it before you came. If you read through in John's Gospel from chapter 14, verse 1, right through to the end of chapter 17, There you have the discourses and the prayers that took place in the upper room in Jerusalem at the last Passover meal, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and also as they travel 
from the old city of David down through the Kedron Valley and across to the slopes of Mount Oliphant, um, to the Mount of Olives. It's the background of that that you need to read to understand really what's going on in the battle in the Lord's own heart and mind and will. I'm going to read a slightly harmonized version of it, um, but you can follow quite clearly in Matthew 26, 36 through 46. You'll find it on page 997 in our church pew Bibles. Please take a Bible and turn to Matthew's Gospel, and I will be interjecting some additional information from Mark 14 and Luke 22, if you want to check that out later on. Um, to make sure I didn't put that in uh, myself. So let's read God's Word together from Matthew 26, verse 36. Then, that is following the upper room discourses and the prayers, Jesus went with His disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with Him, And he began to be sorrowful, Mark tells us, deeply distressed and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, Luke tells us about a stone's throw. He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father. Mark tells us, he said, Abba, Father, if it is possible. Mark again says, everything is possible. May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then Luke adds this additional information. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Verse 40, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Mark tells us they did not know what to say to him. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Mark says, Enough. Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Amen. This is the Word of God. So, a battle of the wills, eh? Well, in Eden, that's the place where I see the battle of the submissive human will lost. Uh, Some of you will have seen this little chart that we're going to put up here, that in the beginning, God, the Creator, in love, having a will and an intellect and emotion of His own, created humanity in His image. Male and female, He created them both. 
And so man reflecting that image of God also has a will, an intellect, an emotion given to him by this loving God. But in the garden, Adam and Eve, rather than exercising the free will under God's leadership that he intended them to have, they took the situation into their own hand, tempted by the devil, they decided to go their own way. So God's love towards them is violated through rebellion, and they are separated from him. The result of that is that they are now left still with a will and intellect and emotion, but to govern it themselves through their egocentricity. So that's the situation that they find themselves in. Man, having been created in the image of God with a will and an intellect and emotion, is now left to rule his own lives, to make his own decisions, to go his own way. And just in case you think this is some kind of newfangled idea, um, how many people would recognize this? It's the Charlotte Chapel record, um, the bound edition of the, the, the record that used to come out monthly. And back in 1968, 41 years ago, when Angus Ferguson, M.A., was the editor, one William, Reverend William White wrote on, uh, in the message of the month about the self-life. Uh, Barry's nodding. He remembers it, or at least he'll remember some of it. Some of you will remember this. Well, I, I found this a fascinating article, and sadly, I only found it today. I was browsing in the vestry uh, about an hour and a bit ago, and I just came across this. I wanted to read it to you, because in this, uh, William White covers the self-mind, that's the intellect, what Colin was preaching about this morning, the emotional life, uh, the emotional self, which we're not touching on tonight, but the volitional self. Uh, volition simply means will. So the part uh, that's recognized, that this is how man and woman, men and women, are created in the image of God. And I want to read um, this little quote from from the record 41 years ago. Uh, White says, Third, there is our relational self. Self-will is one of the most powerful forces in human nature. Each one of us likes to choose our own way, to make our own plans, to shape our own life. The attribute of will is probably the greatest power with which God has endowed us. Our wills, our self-life, the greatest power that God has endowed us with. And so in Gethsemane, I see the battle for a submissive human will being fought again. And we're going to be looking at that uh, later on in our sermon. And that will take us to Calvary. Because maybe you've gone right from the Garden of Eden in your rebellion and gone straight to Calvary where the solution is found. But I want you to pause. I want to pause with you in the place called Gethsemane because I believe there is much to be learned. In the battle to restore our submissive human wills, that's one at Calvary where through the power of the cross of Jesus, God's love re-enters the human heart. Can we just put up the whole slide there, David? That'd be great. I want this quote from Selwyn Hughes to impact our thoughts. We are truly converted when at the cross our pride, our egocentricity, and idolatry is smashed through repentance and God's love through Christ re-enters our human personality. That's the power of salvation. But what did that cost Jesus on the way to Calvary? 
Two more things about the exercise of will. First of all, the exercise of human will is the gift of God. Uh, And I've got some proof texts there from Genesis 4, 6 through 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must master it. Then Isaiah 1, verses 18 following. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then from the New Testament, John 7 and 17, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So the exercise of our wills, our free will, is a gift from God. But that said, I want to just highlight this reality too, that obedience to God's sovereign will is the duty of every man. Jesus, uh, in Matthew's gospel uh, earlier on, chapter 12, verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. John 4, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 6, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then applied to the church, Romans 12 and 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And in order to understand the battle of the wills, we need to understand what happened to Jesus in Gethsemane. Because war is raging there. It's not a Sunday afternoon stroll. Something very profound is taking place. Gethsemane is the site where Jesus prayed in lonely anguish just before his public betrayal and the subsequent arrest there. Its precise location is not known. It's somewhere on the slopes of the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley from the city of David. Um, I've been to Israel a couple of times on visits, and uh, if you've ever been a pilgrim to Israel, you'll choose your own favorite spot. So I think I know where it is, even though nobody else does. And you would as well if you've been there. Authenticity is claimed for several sites um, on or near this mountain, but none can trace their claim back earlier in the 4th century, so none of us know for sure. But what we do know for sure, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, he interprets the events in Gethsemane, not on the cross, but the events in Gethsemane as the proof of the godly fear and obedience that formed a prelude to Jesus' perfection. That's why I want us to stop and to meditate and to ponder on what's happening in Gethsemane. Lord, I need to go to Gethsemane to understand Calvary. I need to go to Gethsemane to make sense of what happened in the Garden of Eden. I need to have an experience in Gethsemane if I'm to understand what will happen when the new city appears that will come down from heaven 
that I will dwell in with the Lord forever. Gethsemane, um, both in Hebrew and Aramaic, means oil press. Got a picture here illustrating the practice of crushing or the pressing of olives. Uh, the olives would be gathered together in um, to the slightly right of the picture, the round sack-like material. The olives would be placed in there and a big stone placed over them. Uh, and then this cantilever uh, press, uh, the end of it would be weighted down on the left-hand side with differing weights of rocks. The first one would be a heavy weight, but only heavy enough just to squeeze the olive gently to extract from it what we would now call virgin olive oil. Then another weight would be added to it, uh, and the olive would be crushed all the more um, vigorously, producing a different grade of olive oil. Eventually, the weight was so heavy and so intense that it broke the very stones inside the olive, and what ran out was a red-like, blood-colored material. An olive oil so bitter, so useless in terms of cooking and everyday use, that it was used actually as a grease to make the wheels of chariots run more smoothly, used in farm implementation simply as a lubricant. The Gethsemane, the oil, of the, the, the oil press. And I see very much depicted in what Jesus goes through, a pressing, the bearing of a weight, that squeezes from him something that you and I can hold very precious and understand tonight. So what can we learn and observe from Jesus' example of submitting his human will to the will of God that will assist us in our battle? And it is a battle. I have a daily battle against my will. You have a daily battle against your will. And how can we surrender completely to the will of God? In his little commentary on Matthew's gospel, William Barclay observes four things in the battle of Jesus' soul in Gethsemane. And I want to use them as a focus for our thoughts tonight. First of all, let us ponder the agony of Jesus. The anguish that Jesus experienced in Gethsemane should not be lightly passed over or dismissed simply as his response to facing death by crucifixion the following day. I I agree with those who believe that something very deep and significantly profound is dawning on Jesus as he retreats to this familiar trysting place to seek the comfort of his Father's presence in prayer. You see, death itself holds no particular threat and apparently hasn't instilled any fear in the experience of countless thousands, if not millions, of martyrs throughout the church's history. And Jesus himself has spoken calmly and realistically about the prospect of his death, even alluding to the torturous and barbaric form of execution devised by the Romans as being the means whereby he would meet his death. So I think we can safely conclude that it isn't the prospect of physical death per se that causes him to agonize so deeply and sorrowfully. Consider the interpretation that the two verses found earlier in this gospel account cast in understanding this passage of Scripture. In Matthew 1 and 21, the message from the angel says that she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, 
because he will save his people from their sins. He will be called Jesus, the Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man, Jesus is speaking, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Couple that with Matthew's clear understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. There is no other satisfactory explanation than to interpret this agonizing experience as the dawning upon Jesus' soul of the enormity of the burden that he is about to face. And that he's got to shoulder the weight of the sin of every one of us and being separated from his Father as he bears God's wrath in judgment for our sins. Now, just in case you're in danger of missing the point and see Jesus' death as nothing more than expression of his sacrificial love for you because you're worth it, then look again. The man on his face in the dirt of the olive grove is not inclined to do anything from a human perspective but seek a way out of his impending ordeal. He isn't concerned about dying. He isn't agonizing um, over that. He's agonizing over the reality that your sin and mine is to be heaped upon his sinless shoulders. And as a result, for the first time in eternity, he will lose all connection with his heavenly Father and be condemned in the place of fallen sinners. And to put it very, very mildly, he isn't looking forward to it one little bit. As Bible-believing Christians, we often hear about the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us. It's a source of immense comfort as we hear of God's grace working in such a way that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Comforting indeed. Well, lest you, like I know I have at times, treated the holy things of God lightly, take another look at what God sees here in the garden. Every vile and flawed act or thought that you or I have ever had or ever will have, what the Bible calls sin, is being imputed to Christ. That's right. A transfer deal is already underway. And Jesus is now on his knees pleading with the Father to reconsider his divine will and eternal purposes to set you and me free from the wrath of God. The full reality of what Jesus is facing cannot ever be understood by mere mortals such as you and I. But believe this, if you believe nothing else, We are the reason he's suffering. It's not his death the next day. It's our sin. It's who we are by very human nature. That's what he's agonizing over because he's going to become like 
us. He's going to become exactly like us. And the smell is going to be dreadful in his father's nostrils. So dreadful that the father will turn away from him and ignore his son. The cup that he asks to be taken from him is the cup of God's wrath. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding in the evangelical church regarding God's wrath. We often hear that God hates sin and loves sinners. If you pull out the archive of my sermons, you'll probably hear me say it. I regret saying it. You see, the reality is that God does not punish sin. He punishes sinners. And the only way of escaping God's wrath is to repent of your sin and believe that Jesus was punished instead of you. John 3 and 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. But the verse doesn't stop there. It concludes, for God's wrath remains on him. Sure, God loves the whole world that he gave his son. His one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves us. But if you're a sinner outside of the grace of God, the Bible word is that God hates you and is angry towards you and will punish you one day for being the sinner that you are. Now, there's going to be a temptation for all of us to sidestep God's will for our lives. And even tonight, you may be facing a personal Gethsemane as the demands of following God's will for your life dawns upon you. It may be breaking off an unbiblical relationship. It may be dealing with a lifelong addictive habit or thought pattern. It may be recognizing the fuller extent of God's sovereign purposes regarding your health or your wealth. Maybe you have a thorn in the flesh, a a persistent messenger from Satan that you have sought to be free from, but rather than deliverance or healing, the comforting assurance that God gives us is that His grace is sufficient for you. The lesson of Gethsemane is that God knows best, and we must learn to say, not my will but your will be done. The agony of Jesus. Secondly, the loneliness of Jesus. Peter, James, and John are by this stage of Jesus' ministry. They're well established as the three disciples closest to the Lord. And having parked the other eight disciples, remember Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, he's already away by this time. He's coming back later this night in a guise that none of us would want to fall into. So Jesus invites these three to come and Keep watch. He moves about a stone's throw away from them. And then, but before he does that, he brings them into his confidence and he opens his heart to them. Uh, look back again at verse 37. He began to be sorrowful. Mark says in Mark 14 and 33, deeply distressed and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
I've read this passage, I don't know how many times, pondered it, meditated upon it. As I reread it again this week, I just thought, this is pretty personal stuff, isn't it? This is pretty personal stuff from Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Most of us wouldn't be comfortable sharing at this level with strangers or even with people that we did trust. But observe, through following through in obedience to the will of God, we too can also have a very lonely experience. There are times when even those who ought to know better and be more fully supportive will let you down. Of course, some of us can have a great deal of sympathy with these disciples. Don't be so hard on them, Rodney. They're physically exhausted. They've run out of all their human and physical and psychological energy reserves. And it would appear that that far from having the attitude of many Christians today, they're not lazy. They just simply could not stay awake. Whatever, Jesus is left to fight his battle alone. And that can be sometimes true of us too. And indeed, there are times when it's actually much better for us not to rely on others to bail us out or to rush around to every crisis, whether real or imaginary. Jesus faced loneliness and came through. And he is able to identify with us in our hour of need when, as the one hymn writer puts it, when all other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. You're never alone. No matter how dark your valley, you're never alone. No matter how difficult the experience, you're never alone. I might not be there, and maybe I should. Someone else maybe ought to be there for you, and maybe they aren't. But you're never alone. Because the lonely Savior is the one who stands by and understands your weakness, understands your suffering. The agony of Jesus, the loneliness of Jesus, takes us to the trust of Jesus. One of the reasons I harmonized the reading tonight was to highlight just how intimate and trusting Jesus was of his Father as he approached him in prayer. Mark tells us that Jesus addressed God as Abba, Father. A term, as many of you know, is is often interpreted to mean the equivalent of the English word daddy, dad, or dada. We certainly know from other literature and also from modern-day language in Aramaic. It's a family word. It's used by very young children to address their father. In fact, it was in a little village called Bethany, not far from Jerusalem, that I saw some children play one day, and something went wrong between the siblings, and this little child took off shouting, Abba, 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 Abba! Daddy, where are you? You can detect simplicity and trust in what Jesus says if you think about it in these terms. Eugene Peterson puts it like this in the message. Papa, Father, you can, can't you? Get me out of this. Take this cup away from me. But please, not what I want. What do you want? There are echoes of the trust that Isaac had in Abraham when the boy was confused as to how they were going to be able to go up the mountain to sacrifice if there wasn't a lamb. Abraham assured his son that God would provide a lamb. This moment in history and this means of propitiation 
for the sacrifice that was required in terms of the sacrifice to free us from our sin. It's been agreed by the Godhead in eternity. And like Jesus, we need to learn that to trust the will of God and to obey it does not ever guarantee that we will understand it or necessarily enjoy it. But however, there's another huge lesson for us to learn here. The place of prayer, even wrestling and agonizing and lonely, tiring, exhausting prayer helps us prepare for the task of obeying God's sovereign will, however unpleasant it may appear from our human perspective. In light of this, can you understand and more fully appreciate the note of surprise in the question, this childlike trust that Jesus has in the garden, even as he agonizes and wrestles and left lonely to fight his own battle. In that question that we call the cry of dereliction that Jesus called out from the cross, Matthew 27 verse 46 says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For me, he was forsaken. For me, he died alone. My sin forever taken that I might be his own. In surrendering our will, we must surely come in this same attitude and spirit. Father, you can do everything. And while I have my preferred options, I am not so much bothered about getting things my way because I trust your superior wisdom and love. I therefore entrust myself to seeking and obeying your will. Fourthly and finally, the courage of Jesus. Some opponents of Christianity have suggested that Jesus' words, rise, let us go, indicate cowardice and reveal Jesus' intention to run away. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you know anything about Jesus' life, and if you don't, can I really encourage you to read the Gospels? Um, read the rest of the Bible as well, absolutely. Read anything that tells you what the Gospels mean. But read the Gospels. Read them frequently. Read them faithfully. Read them just getting into who this man Jesus is and how he interacts with other people, how he behaves. Get to know Jesus. And the best place to do that is in the gospel accounts of him. If you do know something of him, then you're going to immediately recognize that his resolve has been strengthened and that his willing spirit has overcome the protestation of his flesh. And having labored in the face of prayer, he's ready to face both his betrayer and his appointment with the divine judgment that he must lay down his life for the sin of the world. See, flip back to that agony. What is that? Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Physically, he's appalled at the idea of being like you and me, a sinner condemned under the angry, just punishment of God. Psychologically, he's battling intellectually to deal with that stuff as it dawns on him. So physically, he's repelled from it. Psychologically, it's causing him great anxiety. 
But he doesn't give in to the physical or the psychological aspects of his nature. Instead, he lets the Spirit rule. And the Spirit takes the lead and overcomes in prayer to that place where he's filled again with divine energy that he might go and face what it is that lies before him. Barclay says, in prayer, a man kneels before God that he may stand erect before men. In prayer, a man enters heaven that he may face the battles of earth. We have observed Jesus advance through his praying from, if it is possible, take this away, yet not my will but thine be done, to secondly and decisively, my Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And then just to cement that reality that that's where he's going, he repeats it a second time. How often as a Christian have you determined to do God's will, determined to follow his leading, and you've prayed the prayer but only once? Cement it. Lord, I know this relationship that I'm breaking off is wrong in the eyes of God, and I will not go back to it. Let your will be done. Only to, oh, what you know? On reflection, it's maybe not that bad. Now stand, take your stand, and go back and repeat it. It's God's will, not your will, that must be done. That habit that you're going to break off and give up and find deliverance for, once and for all, nail it. Nail it down into the reality that Jesus knows how to agonize in prayer, and he'll teach you how to do it too. You see, the tragedy for the disciples, especially the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, is that having failed to watch and pray with Jesus, they are utterly lacking in the strength that he has gained. They've missed an opportunity, and there is an inevitable consequence that will be highlighted in Peter's threefold denial. Having declared only a few verses before his willingness to go even to death with Jesus, and we believe he meant it. He mustered all the strength his flesh could assert. Jesus, never let it be said, so I will go to death for you. And he meant it. And you meant it when you made that commitment to Jesus to do X, Y, or Z, and never to go back to your old sinful ways. You meant it. But you meant it in all the power your flesh could muster. And you failed because you did not wait upon God in prayer so your spirit could be re-energized to take control of the flesh and say, not only did I mean it, I'm going to perform it. I'm going to walk this way in the spirit from now on. In Romans 7 and 8, we observe the apostle Paul wrestling with the same dilemma. The good he desires to do, he does not. And the evil he loathes, this he does. Anyone here tonight not familiar with that concept? Come and speak to me later. It's a daily battle in the human will. A wretched man indeed. Who can save him? Ah, Jesus Christ, the one who learned obedience by the will and the sovereign purposes of God that crushed him in the garden until he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This God-man and his substitutionary atoning sacrifice is the only hope for our rebellious and stubborn wills. Please note, dear brother or sister in Christ, God nowhere in the Bible or by the Spirit promises to strengthen your resolve to do better. Nowhere. 
no matter how honorable it may be. You're going to be a better Christian from tonight on. God does not promise to help you. He promises to help you when you say there is nothing you can do for yourself. You're wretched and you're pitiful and you're weak and you're vulnerable. Acknowledge it. Admit it. Secondly, he never offers to make you uh, make better human judgments. What he does offer is death to your old self and the imparting of a new life in Christ so that you can be led by his Holy Spirit. By his Holy Spirit. And with this we must conclude. Because time is gone and my notes are nearly finished. The surrender of wills. Second Peter 3 and 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Not surrendering your will completely to God, you choose to run your life, and you remain under the judgment and wrath of God who hates sin and sinners, who do not turn to him for salvation. Your final destiny is hell, and your experience is one of separation from God forever. By choosing to surrender your will, you're admitting that you're a sinner and recognizing that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. You turn away from leading a life governed by egocentric decisions and ask God, by His Holy Spirit, to enter your life and take control of every aspect of it from now on. So what will it be? A stubborn rejection or a glad surrender? It's your choice. Let us pray.